Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Back and forth. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. The men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. Fastball is a high drive in the deep left center field. Butler goes back to the this is Hardball. Dad? You want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino. Thanks for finding and taking the time to listen to the first episode of what I hope will be many hours spent together going forward. A couple of quick things. What do I hope Hardball is? What do I hope you tell other baseball fans you know after you listen? Simply this. In a world where you now have thousands of choices of what to stream, download, and listen to. This is a world of stories, first-person accounts of the people, players, managers, teammates, and opponents. The biggest moments in the game's history from those who I caught up with them over the last 19 years or so have had the added benefit of time to reflect on all of it. It's a project more than 20 years in the making. Covered baseball for over 25 years. Been honored to do it with a credential which is basically a key that opens up more doors than you can ever imagine. I've enjoyed the hunt, tracking down these men and women and asking if they would share more than just their time. I don't like the idea of an interview. I don't like that word. I've never gone into any of these with a list of questions. What I found is that if you're so worried about question number five, you haven't listened to anything that's been said leading up to that. The quickest way to lose the best stuff is by doing the whole thing in your head beforehand. The goal is conversation. And I swear you can hear it, feel it, that moment when someone is telling you a story they haven't told before or something they haven't thought about in decades. When they lean into the phone, happy that you called, then sit back and relax because they realize it's a friendly room. Over the upcoming episodes, you'll hear stories that go as far back as the 1930s. Eldon Auker, a pitcher for the Tigers who faced both Babe Ruth and played with Hank Greenberg. Tommy Henrik was on the field at Yankee Stadium the day that Lou Gehrig gave his luckiest man on the face of the earth speech. Ted Williams, who told me about what type of father he thought he was. Phil Rizzuto, on the unlikely world where he wins an MVP and ends up in the Hall of Fame. Names you know, Hank Aaron, Duke Snyder, Whitey Ford, and some you might not. Tracy Stallard, who, by the way, was one of my favorites. He gave up Roger Maris's 61st home run, but he also played for Casey Stengel, played for a bad Mets team. Had some redemption later on in his career as if he needed it. By the way, he didn't, but he does talk about it. Clem Labine, Norm Sherry, the man that Sandy Koufax said changed his entire career and others. First-hand accounts. I do not think there's anything like this out there, which is the only reason I decided after years of saying no to put it together. I have only one ask. If you enjoy my time spent with Stan Musial today, tell a few people about it, where they can find it about some of the people who will be coming up in future episodes. So now why Stan Usual to kick this off? Well, I played four or five minutes of this locally in Atlanta on a Saturday morning baseball show that I co-host. And later on that day, a 42-year-old self-admitted big baseball fan 
He told me he'd never heard Stan Musial speak before that day. Think about that. Players today have got microphones under their noses all of the time. He asked me how I found him and struck up what seemed to be a phone friendship so quickly. It was that day that I started to think about finding a way to put some of these old tapes out. We're losing these guys and their history every day. So many of the ones that I actually spent this time with have passed. And as great as the written word is, I do believe that hearing stories firsthand wins every time. It got the juices flowing to find more guys to sit down with. Joe Morgan, Jim Rice, Dave Parker, Reds pitcher Jim Maloney, who, by the way, you might not know, but he has a place in Stan Musial's history. He's the guy that gave up Stan's last hit in his last at-bat. Number 3630. And you probably know it's an amazing 1,815 at home, 1,815 on the road. Jim Maloney is a part of that history. This podcast is not going to be about numbers, ERAs, whips, OPS. It's about what players have seen and felt, how they got from small town anywhere to places like Fenway Park or Tiger Stadium. Now, Stan's got numbers. And his story, while it starts out a little bit differently, and you'll hear that coming up in a few minutes, it checked all the boxes when he was done. Three MVPs, three World Series titles, seven batting titles, 475 home runs, 1,951 RBI, and a lifetime 331 batting average. A record 24 all-star teams and a waltz in a Cooperstown. Oh, and like a few others, he had not one but two songs written about him. He was also one of the most beloved and humble superstars ever. Here you go. Stan Musial. I wanted to guard that plate in the strike zone, so I crashed over it somewhat. Here's the pitch. Line drive, there it is! In the left field! Hit number 3,000! A runner scores! Musial around first! On his way to second so with a double! I think I can feel qualified to say that baseball really was a great game. And baseball is really a great game. And baseball will always be a great game. We're going to play uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. We're all going to sing it, too. Mr. Stan Musial, one of the all-time greats. And, Mr. Musial, I want to thank you again this evening for spending a little time with us. Well, great. It's nice talking to all your good fans down where, where are you, Atlanta? Yes, sir. Oh, great. Atlanta, Georgia, home of the Atlanta Braves. And certainly uh, I know you follow the game pretty closely today. What have you thought about this Braves team in well, this decade of the 90s? Uh, they've had some great pitch in the last seven or eight years, and they won the division. So they're they're tough uh, they're a tough team to beat uh, with good pitching. Uh, I, uh, I'm kind of concerned about your club this year, though. You don't think this is the year of the Brave, perhaps? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know about your hitting this year. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we talked about pitching. I think something a lot of people do not know, you were originally brought into the Cardinals organization as a pitcher mainly, were you not? Well, I, you know, when you're in high school and you have the best arm they always make you a pitcher but it, uh, I was a wild typical left hand pitcher and I strike out a lot of guys but uh, I could always hit 
in high school, I was a good hitter, hit four or five hundred in high school. And why, why somebody didn't sign me up as a hitter, I don't know. But uh, Cardinals signed me up as a pitcher. Do you think you would have made it to the major leagues as a pitcher? No, I doubt it very seriously. I didn't have confidence in pitching. I was wild. And, no, I doubt if I'd have been a Warren Spawn. <laughs> so if there is such a thing as a good injury, you actually suffered a good injury. Well, I had, a, I had I landed on my shoulder playing the outfield uh, one one day, and uh, fortunately, uh, we had a uh, exhibition game down in down in Florida the next spring, and I hit that three three or four hits. I had a long home run, and Branch Rickey, who was running the Cardinals that time, saw the game, and they decided after that to make me a pitcher, which uh, I mean a hitter, which I. I uh, they sent me to Springfield, Missouri, Class C, three months. Rochester, Class AAA, three months. I was leading the league in all these towns, and then brought me to St. Louis for a couple of weeks and had 400. So I made one year. I jumped from Class C to the majors. <laughs> and again, if there is such a thing as a, a fortuitous injury, that might have been the one. Now, Stan the Man, the nickname, did that really come from the Brooklyn Dodger fans? Well, yes, uh, they were great fans of the. Uh, Seats were close to the ball, to the uh, field, and uh, I did such hitting in Brooklyn. You could hear the fans saying after I start, came walking up to the plate, uh, "Here comes that man again! Here comes that man again!" So one of our writers picked it up, and they met, uh, they gave me my nickname. The uh, Brooklyn fans—they're great fans. And you loved hitting at Ebbets Field. Oh yes, I, I loved it. it was short, short. Uh, 297 down in right field, and I tried to hit most of the balls down in that direction, and I was fortunate enough to, to do some good hitting there. I am joined tonight by Stan Musial on Sports Talk 790 The Zone and Budweiser's Hardball. Now, the home run itself, you kind of avoided hitting home runs your first few years in the majors. When I look at your statistics, did you make a conscious effort at some point to maybe go a little bit deeper and pull the baseball a little bit more? Yes, well, my first uh, four or five years, I used to uh, wait a little longer, punch the ball, and hit the ball to the left left field, and hit hit a lot of doubles and singles, you know. And then after I got some confidence in hitting, and and and, uh, and I, I noticed the home run hitters, Ralph Kanner was making the highest salary, so I thought <laughs> I better change my ways. So I started pulling that ball and. So it, it helped. Did you have the same stance as a young player? Yes, I had the uh, crouch. I was in a crouch. Uh, cut down the strike zone, but I, I felt very comfortable with my stance, and uh, I had a good level of swing. So uh, the stance, uh, there's a lot of different stances as far as hitting goes, but I felt comfortable and could uh, get the bet on the ball. I, I think another little-known story is in 1946, uh, some, I guess, allegedly big-money people wanted to start baseball in Mexico, and they wanted you to almost be the centerpiece of that league. How close did you actually come to maybe signing a play in Mexico? Well, the, one, of the, one of the owners down there came up with Mickey Owens to St. Louis to try to talk me to sign the contract with, uh, this, the, with the Mexican League, but I wasn't, I wasn't interested even after they, uh, they threw... Ten, five ten thousand dollar cashier checks on the table and said, you know, I'd make about hundred twenty five, hundred thirty thousand for five years. It didn't phase me one bit. I was only making thirteen five with the Cardinals, but 
I uh, I I love the Cardinals and the big leagues. Major being in the big leagues, so that they couldn't. Uh, convinced me and and, uh, and I never had any aspirations about going down there. And Mr. Musial, we talked to Joe Namath not too long ago who's from that same area and by the way I'm sure you know this by now um, his boyhood idol growing up was yourself. Well Joe I see running to Joe every once in a while he was a great football player a great athlete and uh, you know he got that other league started. Uh, he, he was a great competitor and a great, great friend of mine. And we talked about where you guys kind of grew up in that area. Did the fear of the mills and the mines maybe motivate your athletic ability a little bit more than if you would have grown up someplace else? Well, of course, uh, it was a hard-working area. It was 50 miles north of Pittsburgh, south of Pittsburgh, all these steel mills. And uh, sports is a way of life uh, for the high school Ball players to uh, to maybe uh, get a scholarship on and, and go to college, and that was one way to do it. So we all strived for that uh, scholarship. Now your parents wanted you to go to college, but your father didn't want you to sign that first contract, did he? Yeah, my dad didn't want to uh, sign that contract, and and the I had an offer from the Pittsburgh uh, Pittsburgh University to, to play basketball. I was a good basketball player, but my dad. Wouldn't sign. Finally, uh, third time and the last time the scout was coming up to her house, I talked to my mother and told him, told her that I, this is what I wanted to do and this is what I'd like to do. Love baseball, and so finally convinced my dad to sign. So you had the right parent on your side. You had your mom on your side. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, because I had to have. Uh, you know, I was underage. I was only 17, mm-hmm. so I had to have parental. Uh, uh, okay. Do you remember how much you signed for that first contract? Oh, yeah, that was uh, like $65 a month. And did you think you were rich? Well, I, 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 at the end of the month, I had $5 left over. <laughs> <laughs> Which is $5 more than you would have had if you went to college. <laughs> did you like the train rides? Well, it was, uh, it was fun and a good experience. You know, we used to go east and spend two weeks on the train coming and going. And uh, there was a lot of togetherness. We talked a lot of baseball, you know, so it, it was a way of life at that time, and uh, it was, you know, it was something we had to do. Now, it's an interesting story. The day you got your 3,000th hit, I believe you were coming back from Chicago on the train, correct? Yeah, that was our last train ride uh, when uh, from Chicago to St. Louis. After that, we started flying, but uh, got 3,000 hits, and on the way home, I train stopped at three or four different uh, cities on the way and they they knew when our train was coming by and i train was stopped and i went out and talked to the fans and saluted them and (laughs) said we had a great time coming back i am talking to stan mutual for a few more minutes on budweiser's hardball and 790 the zone now mr mutual when jackie robinson broke the color barrier there was some talk and it wasn't just the st louis cardinals there were some in-house things with the dodgers and some other teams how close did it ever come, this, this supposed boycott that the Cardinals might have actually put forth? Well, there was, uh, it was uh, we had a lot of southern boys on our club, and they were, there were some rumblings going on. But actually, we never had any meetings or discussion about uh, not, not playing, you know. And uh, I told uh, a lot of the writers, uh, they didn't. Take, have to take my word for it because Marty Marion was still living, Karowski was around, Red and uh, Red Changes was playing, and uh, so there's never any organized effort to uh, not not to play uh, with, with 
Robertson. Now, Brant Trachey was a gentleman who was instrumental in the beginning of your career, you mentioned, and we all know what his storyline is with the Dodgers and the breaking of the color barrier. Did you get any inclination from Brant Trachey that he might do this when he went over to the Dodgers? Yeah, once uh, once he left the Cardinals, we hardly were ever in contact mm-hmm. with Ricky. He was, uh, you know, he went to Brooklyn and did very well over there, and uh, they won some pennants. <laughs> and they were tough. They had some tough teams. Once they got Robinson and Campanella and Newcomb, they were they they were a great club. And the Cardinals really took a little bit of a while before they integrated, correct? Well, I think in the fifties we uh, finally got one. Uh, I think Tom Olson mm-hmm. was the first baseman, so uh, I don't know what year that was, but uh, we finally did. Now, there was also a report that you were almost traded from the Cardinals at one point. Um, how close did it actually come to that happening? Well, I don't think they traded Red Chandies, and that was kind of a shock uh, to all our fans here in St. Louis. Trader Lane, that was his name, Trader Lane. <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he was known for trading ball players and Word got around that, that they might be trading me, but uh, I uh, I uh, said I, I word got out that I said if I was traded, that I doubt if I would go because I had some business here in St. Louis and doing very well, and uh, so Bush heard about it and he he uh, talked to Lane and and that was the end of it. Do you still like watching baseball today? Oh, yes, I love the game. I should go to a lot of the openers and special occasions for the Cardinals and watch it on television. Once a ball player, you're always a ball player, and I love baseball, and it's a great game. What size bat did you use? I used a 34-and-a-half-inch uh, bat and, and about 32 ounces. Have you picked up some of the players' bats today, how light they are? Well, <laughs> Well, we found out after the war that what what made the ball go further was the lighter lighter bats mm-hmm. and, and uh, speed of the bats. So most of the ball players found that out and they start uh, using thinner handles and lighter bats. So uh, my bat was kind of light and thin handle. And what was your best day in baseball? Do you have one day that sticks out more than any other? Well, let's see. Of course, that three thousand hit was kind of special, you know. Not many ball players gotten. Got three thousand hits, and uh, well, then just for fun, you put about six hundred more on top of that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, I guess the other day was I had I hit five home runs in a double header. That was kind of special. After they told me I, after I hit the fifth one, they said I broke some kind of a record. But uh, up to that time, I wasn't trying to hit home runs. And then they came up one more time, and the Cardinals had a great rally and got me to the plate in the eighth inning again. And but. Uh, for the first time, I said, I'm going to hit a home run, which I didn't. <laughs> and, and you really, you went out there hitting a home run, but you didn't do that normally. No, no, home runs come naturally. That's right. Every once in a while, on a special occasion, you might you might uh, say try for a home run. Well, it happens, but not too often. Like an all-star game, perhaps? No, well, I hit when the all-star game won the game. It was, it was great. And uh, but uh, Is that story true, What you and the conversation you and Yogi Berra had? That was right. Uh, Lear Grusher was going up to the plate, and he he was our manager. He said, "No, he said, Stan, you you owe me one. You hit too many. I hit too many against him. So I get up to Yogi, talk to Yogi, and says, you know, it's a long day. It was getting dark, and I'm, I said, I'm tired. And I said, so so it, so it, it went along those lines, and finally I did hit it. And you let Yogi and everybody else go home. 
Yeah, we we had a long day. Do you have a worst day in baseball? Is there a day that stands out for all the wrong reasons with you? Um, I can't. No, I, any, anything would happen we couldn't be bad on the baseball field. You know, when you're reaching ambition to uh, be a major league ball player, and you know you live and love it, and it's a great game. And no, it, yeah, I didn't have any bad. <laughs> Two outs, bottom of the ninth. The game is tied. There's a man on second. Your team is up. All time of all the players you ever saw play, who do you want hitting in that situation for you? Well, there's a lot of good good hitters, you know. Uh, back in those days, um, uh, Enos Slaughter was a good, great clutch hitter. Uh, um, let's see who else was playing in those days. Uh, well, Duke Snyder, Willie Mays, they were they were tough. Uh, I can think of offhand. How about pitching? Same situation if you're out in the field. Who would you like to close that game out for you on the mound? Well, as, uh, as for us, uh, be Bob, Bob Gibson. Mm-hmm. I played with Gibson for five years, five years, and he was a great clutch pitcher. And, of course, uh, Warren Spahn and Robin Roberts, they were the other two, were great, great pitchers. Boy, Warren Spahn wasn't so great against you, though. You hit him. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be able to hit Spawn, but uh, he was he was one of the great pitchers of all time. You know, can you imagine a pitcher winning winning twenty games, thirteen seasons? No, I can't. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sorry that I'm too young to have missed what Mr. Spawn and and what you did. What what might be your most prized possession out of all the years you played, Mr. Musial? Well, I guess. Um, Going in the Hall of Fame was very special, you know, after playing all those years and loving to play baseball and voted in the Hall of Fame with all those great ball players up there. Why, it was great and special. Do you remember seeing your first baseball card? Card? Yeah. Well, years ago, uh, I think Topps started out with these cards, but uh, I, I didn't uh, get involved uh, probably four, four or five years later. Hmm. And we'll finish up with Mr. Stan Musial today. Very honored. And what a pleasure to speak to him. Mr. Musial, just some quick answers. Do you remember your first hit and who it was off? Yeah, it was off of uh, Jim Tobin. He was a knuckleball pitcher from the Boston Braves. He was a pitcher I never saw in the minors uh, before. I was a knuckleball. <laughs> and it kind of surprised me to see that knuckler, but I did get it. Next time up, I did get a hit off him. How about your first home run? Do you remember that? Well, I was off a rip stall in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I remember, remember that. Your last at bat? Uh, Jim Maloney from Cincinnati. I got a couple of hits my last time up, and then I last two times up, and then they said, why am I retiring? <laughs> <laughs> did you think about it that all season about maybe not retiring? Oh, no. Once, once I... Uh, said I was retiring. I was 42, and I played a lot of baseball. Mm-hmm. It was time for me to retire, and I, I, I enjoyed it. All right, we'll finish up. If I say Willie Mays, one word you would say? Well, he's a great ball player, one of the great ball players of all time, along with Joe DiMaggio, you know. I played with, you know, Ted Williams and uh, Hank Greenberg and uh, a, lot of, a lot of great ball players. Paul Wainer from the 30s, you know. Mm-hmm. One thing I played against Guys who played in the 30s, and I played played till the six till in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So I competed against a long span of baseball players. They're all they're all great. Do you have one player in mind that you might label as the best you ever saw? 
Yeah, no, it was too many. Yeah. Too many. It's probably very diplomatic on your part. <laughs> and what would you like people to say about Stan Musial when yeah, all is said and done? Because that statue with Fort Frick, the comment that's upon the statue, that's in your honor in St. Louis? Yeah, that was a great honor to have a statue dedicated at the ballpark uh, back in 38. That's, uh, I mean, 68. And uh, uh, it was uh, good. Well, I want that to be a... Uh, symbol and, and an inspiration for young ball players when they see their statues to think that you know something like that might happen to them after a good career and hard work and everything else the sacrifice that you had to put in you hope that that's the living legacy well i hope so <laughs> well mr musual it's been a pleasure i i've had an opportunity to speak to some of the greats of your generation um <clears throat> excuse me willie mays and and ted williams and now yourself and uh, I say this on my show a lot. There were times that I wish I was much older than 38, and those days usually come when I see some great vintage footage of watching players like you play. I'm just sorry that I missed it in person. All right, Chris, you're a great fan. Thanks. Well, thanks, Mr. Musial. Have a great day. All right. Bye. Thank you. There isn't anybody with enough eloquence to pay tribute to that fella for what he deserves. with great confidence into a study of this fellow's life. He's genuine. 